Hello and welcome to another edition of the Sitcom Club. Joining myself, Gary, is Mr. Tilted Isa. Happy Independence Day, Tilt. Well, again, I'm still a British citizen as I was every previous one of these times when we looked at American shows, so maybe now is the time to change. In case you've not heard the show before, I'm in the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, and Tilt is formerly from this parish, but now you're out in the uh, the West Coast, so to speak. I am in California, indeed. And that's where all the cool kids come from, like all those pop groups. Was that an attempt at a link? It was a bit, yes. I was I was trying to be slick, but the fact that you've pointed it out means now that it wasn't, and it's actually quite clunky and embarrassing. Well, I was more going to talk about how we do things on the sitcom club. Once a year, we like to look at American shows, because normally we restrict ourselves to British sitcom. A British sitcom of a certain age. So this time I thought, let's be timely. Let's be topical. The Monkees released a new album this year. It's a hit. They're on tour. I'm going to see them in October. And the TV series is coming out on Blu-ray. If you're downloading this the day it goes up on the website, July 4th, apparently it's going to be released on July 8th being pushed back many, many times to include more and more exciting stuff. Monkeys in HD, it's happening. This comes with a warning. Normally on Sitcom Club, we, we, we like to be a couple of moves ahead of the normal things people are saying about the show we're talking about. We're steeped in a certain British television culture. This time we're stumbling about in the dark. So this might sound a little bit more like a beginner's guide than the average Sitcom Club. It certainly is for me. And it is partially for me. I know a deal about the monkeys it's mainly focused on the music. But another reason for us doing this, what happened recently was there's an aerial on top of the house I live in and it hasn't been touched for a while. So I plugged it into my television to pick up all these free-to-air digital channels that are out there. I was actually living in the post-broadcasting life for a while, just streaming services and what I had on DVD. So I've been able to see these channels like Decades and Cozy and Antenna. For those of you who remember what UK Gold used to be like... That's what these channels are like now. But it's been something of an education. I mean, I grew up when Channel 4 was just starting out and they were showing things like The Monsters and Mr. Ed. But I'm now seeing stuff like Gidget, My Three Sons, and all manner of things that are made with a different televisual grammar to that which I'm used to. So with that and the new golden age of monkeys fandom, it's made me think about the way that the monkeys compares to these shows. So we're probably going to go over some familiar ground because we're still trying to get our heads around the idea that the monkeys aren't answerable to adult authority. But if we're on the nursery slopes of talking about the monkeys, who is going to help us? Who's going to be the expert? We have a special guest, Melanie Mitchell, author of a book called Monkey Magic, which looks at every single episode of the TV show and comes up with lots of interesting trivia and interesting opinions, which is something we really like. Regular contributor to a fine podcast called Zilch. I've listened to several of the shows that are up there for download, and I've learned stuff. And she's going to let us know any time we make some ridiculous observation that simply does not hold up when it comes to talking about the monkeys. Melanie, welcome! Hello! Hello! And you're here as Monkeys Television Expert. I'm TV Girl on the Zilch Monkeys podcast, and I also wrote a book about the Monkeys TV show. But you're actually quite a recent Monkeys fan, aren't you? 
Well, monkeys fans tend to divide themselves into generations. The first generation being people who saw the TV show when it first came on the air back in 1966. I'm old enough that technically I could be a first generation fan, but I completely missed the boat and discovered the monkeys, the TV show in 2012, four years ago when Davy Jones died. I was so astonished by all the press coverage and all the outpouring of grief from TV personalities and radio personalities that I went on the internet to find out what it was I'd missed. And basically, like Alice falling down the rabbit hole, I've been falling ever since. I'm having so much fun and I never want to reach the bottom. So how many times have you watched the series all the way through then in the last four years? (laughs) Well... I wouldn't say that I've watched the series all the way through, like, you know, start at the first episode and go to the last. But for each episode, I watched at least 10 times, in some cases more than 10, while writing my book, which, by the way, is called Monkey Magic. It's available pretty much everywhere? It's available through online booksellers like Amazon and Barnes & Noble. It's also available as an ebook from pretty much any source that sells ebooks for um, Nooks and Kindles and iPads. So we've got a slightly different divide here. You know what? I never checked with Gary. You grew up watching The Monkees, right? Yes. I mean, I would have seen it probably the same as yourself. I would have seen it on Children's BBC, mainly in the summer. I associate it with the summer mornings. And that's the thing. I mean, I guess in America, the big divide between first and second generation is the repeat run on MTV marks out the second generation, right? Uh, no. Oh, right. Different people have different opinions about what the numbers are, but I would say, generally speaking, the the MTV generation, which would be 1986 and following, probably would be the third generation. Second generation would be people like you who watched it on Saturday mornings in the early 70s or after school in the late 70s. It's been on the air one way or another pretty much continuously since 1966. So there's a whole cadre of fans who are a little younger than me, maybe a close to your age who watched it growing up in the 70s and that's the thing i I did my research about the way the bbc showed it so they showed it at the time uh, i think it was first shown on bbc one december 31st 1966 then it goes away and then from 1972 to 1987 with occasional years skipped it's in constant rerun cycle but only a pool of about 22 episodes and all syndication prints I started watching with Gary, and he was going, these opening titles aren't right. Because I'm expecting to see them on the beach with the surfboards and what have you. And Yeah, the second season and opening titles start with Davy's belt falling down while he's drawing a gun. And that's what we always saw. So at some point, the BBC must have sent their prints back and then bought a bunch back in, but they must have just bought a set. I say 22, it very quickly becomes 21, so something bad must have happened to one of those prints. Oh dear. I went through the BBC Genome, which is a fantastic research tool, and I just kept seeing the same ones cropping up. So I just I made my list, and there it is. And there's only seven and, uh, from season two uh-huh. in that pool. So I guess we got a kind of distorted view of what the show was like. Interesting. You know, you're going to have to send me that list, do some what? studying about what the themes might be or why they might have gone with something or another. Fascinating. And then there's the British nostalgia side, because weirdly, this show actually kind of fit in with everything else we're being shown during the school holidays. Even though it was from 20 years earlier and on film, I mean, Gary, The Monkeys followed by Why Don't You, that's quite a natural fit. Yes. And you've also got quite a breadth of material as far as the years are concerned. It's not all new material. I mean, you've got things like the Pink Panther show from the 60s. You've got things like Heidi. 
you know, and the serials <laughs> like that. Particularly those summer schedules as well, because we've got to bear in mind that summer schedules, you're going to have repeats and you're going to have lower cost programming. And this is the bits and pieces that are going out in the morning as well. So it's not even the peak time for the children's viewing on the day itself. So I'd be interested to see, well, you said it went out for the first time on New Year's Eve 66, yeah? Yes. What time slot was it in then? That was Saturday evenings, I think after Doctor Who. Don't have the exact time in front of me, but our listeners are the kind of people who have genome bookmarked. 72 also be the first time that the show was shown in colour in the UK. No kidding. It was in black and white back in the 60s? It was in black and white because BBC One did not go in colour until the end of 1969. They could have, if they'd wished to, shown it on BBC Two from the middle of 1967 onwards. They didn't because I was checking and 33 and the third revolutions per monkey did get its first showing in colour on BBC Two in May 1969 and it later got to repeat in August on BBC One in black and white. I don't want to get too sidetracked here, but an idea springs to mind. This slightly off-road special. How does this compare to Beatles' Magical Mystery Tour? Because that's the same sort of vibe that I'm getting yes, from it. Yes, it's... Some pieces I've seen of it. Got a, a lot more projected loathing. I was going to say a self-loathing, but I'm not actually sure it is self-loathing. The producer, Jack Good, has taken a look at the monkeys and, oh, I've got to write a special for these guys. Well, I'm going to show them what's what. The special is pretentious. It has a plot involving a mad scientist who may or may not be a wizard who's trying to create a pop group out of nothing, and the nothing being Peter, Mike, Mickey, and Davy. And it has evolution, and it has science, and it has Jerry Lee Lewis. It just doesn't make any sense, but it is very pretentious in its way. Jack Good actually appeared on the Monkees TV show in an episode called Monkees Mind Their Manor playing an absolute falling down drunk. <laughs> and that was in their second season near the end that he did that episode. But in the UK, Jack Good's uh, something of a pioneer. He was involved in two shows, the 6-5 special for the BBC and Oh Boy for ITV, which introduced the idea of rock and roll television to the UK. Wow. And I'm just kind of trying to wonder if maybe that might be where he gets a little bit of his attitude from that... He was there at the beginning, and these damned kids... Well, let's not get bogged down in 33 and a third, because I tried to get Gary to watch it, and it hasn't taken. So, Melanie, what's the story behind the monkeys then? What's the, the genesis of it? Whose idea was it? How did it come about in the first place? There were two television producers uh, who worked together to create the monkeys. Their names are Bob Rafelson and Bert Schneider, and they remained a partnership for many years after the monkeys, making such well-respected independent movies like Five Easy Pieces and Easy Rider, one of the you know, great groundbreaking partnerships of the 70s. But they started out with the idea that if they could get a TV series going together, then that would give them some money with which to launch their movie careers. Bob Rafelson had worked with musicians in his earlier days and had a wealth of stories about the wacky things that musicians encounter and the wacky problems that they have when they're struggling to you know get from gig to gig and he had this idea that that would be a great basis for a tv show and then after the beatles invasion lit a fire under the idea of oh it should be a group of four guys a rock and roll group and live together and have wonderful adventures and struggle to make a living and so they put this idea to company called Screen Gems, and they got backing for it. 
which may have been helped along by the fact that Bert Schneider's father was the president of Columbia Pictures. They got the backing and they started gathering together, getting a, a pilot script and hiring the four actors who would play these four musicians. The legend, and I emphasize the word legend, is that they put this ad in the paper and 400 people showed up to audition. That's actually true. They did put the ad in the paper. It said, wanted four insane boys. There was a joke in the ad that says, you must come down for an interview. That being, you have to be sober and not high. When you come Uh down for your interview, you have to come down for your interview. As it happens, only one of the four people they hired came in response to the ad. They did get 400 people show up, but only one of the people who just randomly showed up was hired. Davy Jones was a shoe-in from the start. They knew he was going to be in the show. He was already under contract to Screen Gems. Screen Gems wanted to put him in something, and if it hadn't been the monkeys, it would have been something else. But he was perfect for the job because he was adorable and he was British. Mickey Dolenz had already been a television actor. He'd already been the star of a television series. Um, His prior series had been 10 years earlier when he was a little boy, but the show was called Circus Boy. So he was a professional with a SAG card, sorry, Screen Actors Guild card. And, you know, by God, he got a private interview. He didn't have to stand in line for the cattle call. Peter Tork never saw the ad, but a friend of his heard about the show and gave him an in, told him, hey, I think you should try out for this. And he told his friend, yeah, yeah, right. And then his friend called him back and said, no, really, Peter, you should do this. And that friend who gave him this suggestion and encouraged him to go down for the auditions was Stephen Stills of Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young. They were longtime buddies. They were known in Greenwich Village as the two who looked alike because they actually do bear a passing resemblance to one another. At least they did back in 1965. That's how the four of them all came to be part of this project. A couple of them had met each other informally before, but none of them were friends before. So they were, you know, literally brought together for this. And they've said that they never would have chosen each other. There was nothing organic about this band. Their musical styles were different. Their personalities were very different. They were all from very different backgrounds. Mike Nesmith was from Texas. Oh, by the way, Mike was the one who answered the ad. And just to have interest, because I'm something of a newbie when it comes to monkeys, how does English Davy Jones find himself in the States already? Never explained. There is no background given for this show. There is no establishing episode where we find out how the band was formed or how it is they came to be friends. Davy's background... There's only a couple of references made to it in the entire series. There's one episode where his grandfather comes to visit, and it's strongly implied, although not stated outright, that he's an orphan, because he talks about how his grandfather raised him. You may have heard me snigger there. Gary, his grandfather has an accent that indicates he comes from an indeterminate point between Liverpool and Hull that keeps (laughs) moving. And then there was another reference, the same episode that Jack Good appeared in, of Davy having worked as a stable boy in a manor. They have to go, all four of them, over to England to save Kibby Manor from the drunken air. How they achieved England on the soundstage in Los Angeles was they filmed a scene in a convertible car. They filmed the scene in this little car, and then afterwards they flipped the film over so the steering wheel would be on the correct side. Fantastic. <laughs> and that's the closest <laughs> they came to filming in England. <laughs> Car. I mean, you'd think. I mean, if that was like just a few years later, they would do it like Friends, for example. It would be like a big thing, the monkeys in England, and it would be like a two-part special and that kind of thing. But, and they'd uh, all they'd all walk by Big Ben. And they'd all be yeah, right. Uh-huh. No, I actually I prefer their way. <laughs> so one thing we don't 
like on our podcasts is neat and tidy narratives, easy things that are easily put in easy boxes. And the monkeys is great for that. When pop music gets involved, the two main boxes are art and commerce. And if you put the monkeys in one box, they will leak into the other. But this is also a bit of a trauma that ends up running through their work. So they're not meant to be allowed to play on their first couple of albums, of course. Mike Nesmith manages to get his own productions and get a little bit of instrumental involvement. And by the time they get to the position where they have more control over their own music, it's then held against them that they didn't once have control. Therefore, their eventual getting control counts for nothing. By then, it was too late. The original story had stuck. The truth is that there was no way the four of them would have been able to make an album at the same time they were filming the TV show. There's just not enough hours in the day, even if they had the skill, which I'm not sure they did. I mean, Mickey was just learning to play the drums, and he did learn to play the drums, and he played the drums on the record headquarters and on some of the tracks on other records as well. But right off the bat, you know, they were turning out an episode a week of filming all day long. And all there was time for was for them to do the vocals in the evenings to tracks that had already been recorded. It, the story is that, that Peter Tork showed up at a recording session with a guitar and one of the music producers looked at him and said, what'd you bring that for? And he was like, well, you know, I heard there was this little doodle doodle section in the middle of the song and I thought maybe I could do a little counterpoint and go something like this. And they said, this is the track. The track is recorded. It's done. All we need is the, the voices. So this is how the music was made for the first two albums. Instrumentals were done during the day when the monkeys were on the set making the TV show. They'd come in in the evening and, as needed, do their vocals. Mike Nesmith was recording his tracks on the weekends, on Saturdays, to get his two tracks per album that, that he was promised. He did allow Peter to play. So Peter is the one member of the monkeys who actually plays instrumentally on the first two albums but only on the tracks that Mike Nesmith produced. And so bringing that tension between art and commerce to the show, because I think if you try and pitch the show as one thing, it ends up looking like the other. The idea of the Monkees as a family-friendly American sitcom of its time, it's actually a little off. It is subversive. But if you try and pitch it as a subversive countercultural show, it looks kind of nice and friendly and a bit too sweet. And I like that... It had a subversiveness of its own, but it was very subtle. The way Peter usually describes it is that they were a show about four young people living on their own without any older adults to give them advice or tell them what to do. And they did this cheerfully. They were very happy to be in that situation. Now, I would add on to that my own take, which is not only did they not have any older adults to advise them, like a friendly uncle or a manager or grandfather figure, but all of the adults, all of the older adults that were around them were untrustworthy. They were either dishonest, or they were incompetent, or they were hostile, or violent, or they were plain out of their minds bonkers. All of the grown-ups were the bad guys. There's a lot of episodes that end with the lesson being stated, but it isn't being stated by an authority figure. There is, oh, gee, pa. When you think about it that way, the lesson has to come from one of the guys. I'm thinking particularly when we watch, like, talk a little bit more in detail, The Devil and Peter Talk. It's Mike who gives the speech. They don't have to learn it from somebody else. 
and they don't have to then confess that the other person knew better. I'm watching a lot of old shows on Antenna TV over here, and there does seem to be, right at the end, there is that father-knows-best quality. Not on the monkeys. The adults were always there to be defeated or at least endured. For example, police officers or government agents were always incompetent and, in some cases, kooky, a little bit strange. There were no authority figures that you could trust. And that was a very subversive thing. Now, the only grown-ups who came off well were older people, grandfatherly, grandmotherly figures. They were sweet and helpless, but not bad, just in desperate need of help. And the monkeys were very happy to help them. That's another thing about the monkeys was that despite this, oh, they're a wild and wacky long hair rock band, they were incredibly polite, incredibly kind, and just totally willing to drop whatever they were doing to help people. I think that's the thing that might make it a hard sell to some people now. Some people, they only believe that there's youthful rebellion happening if somebody old gets hurt. <laughs> I was watching the shows and I'm trying to get my head, where, where are we now? And it kept moving. I just know if I watch this with some people, they'd be kind of disgusted at how polite the monkeys are. Other times it, it would get too weird for them. They're not staying in their box. They can be rambunctious, but I think that they're unfailingly polite. They're respectful. Even when they're dealing with a police officer who's clearly out of his gourd and unable to assist, you know, they're always polite. And the part of that, I think, was just in order to be acceptable to the audience of that time. But it was also, I think, a stick in the eye because they were saying, you know, look, all you people who are railing about the long-haired weirdos and freaks and rock and rollers, see, they're actually better than you. You can trust your child to go to a rock concert because the singers are good people. And it was a way of allowing middle America, possibly middle Britain, I don't know, to accept the idea that this was good, wholesome entertainment for their kids. So we watched seven shows, of which Melanie chose five for us. And our instructions were a good first season show. Uh, not so good. First season, same for the second season, good and bad. And then two off-the-wall ones, and the reunion special. Gary, I did not tell you which ones were good and which ones are bad and which ones were off-the-wall. I think you might have worked out the off-the-wall ones for yourself, yeah? <laughs> yes, I mean, I would rather that you hadn't told me, so I'm glad you didn't, because it was nice moving from one to another and sort of thinking, is this the same show that I was watching previously where they were all doing that? Because this feels different. And also, there were subtle little differences between season one and season two, which I'll, I'll come to, but I've got a slight preference for season one, I would say. Oh, right. Okay. If I could say something about how the episodes were chosen, and you specified a, a good episode and a not-so-good episode, what's interesting is that the first season was much more consistent in quality. The lows weren't so low, but the highs weren't so high. It was a very good season. And when you say high... Well, <laughs> that too. Uh, <laughs> hang, hang on a minute. Till you, t you, told me, you told me that one of the, the members definitely did fall into that category, perhaps during season two, wasn't it? What category? I just got the sense that Mickey was baked off his nut. <laughs> they were all baked off their nuts. <laughs> Mickey wasn't hiding it well. <laughs> There's a, a scene in one of the second season episodes where Davy makes a bad joke that clearly was not in the script and then dissolves into giggles. And everyone pretty much agrees that that's, you know, a moment in which Davy was high as a kite. But that's not one of the episodes I <laughs> suggested for you. <laughs> 
So anyway, the consistency in the first season was much stronger. And so when I was picking a really good episode and a not so good episode, it wasn't like there was a huge chasm between them. In the second season, they took a lot more chances. They were a lot braver, a lot stranger. And the best episodes of the second season are generally agreed among fans to be basically the best they made. And the worst episodes in the second season are really awful. So I have a feeling, and it'd be interesting to see, you know, if you do better guessing on the second season episodes, which is the good and which is the bad. The first one we watched was The Spy Who Came In From The Cool, which if I was to write like fan fiction or a parody or a bog standard monkey's plot, spies and microfilm, that must have been a little bit whiskery even in 1966. I suppose they're going to go for something which is tried and tested in other films, TV shows, so that it's instantly recognisable. I think that what you're looking at is a very current spoof of not only the James Bond films, but also of a concurrent TV show, one that was slightly older, but still on the air, uh, an American show called Get Smart. And I'm not sure if you're familiar with Get Smart at all, but it was a spy. I don't know when its first showing was in the UK, but... In 1982, we got a fourth television channel in the UK, and when Channel 4 started, one of the things it fell back on to fill its schedules was American Shore, so we got The Monsters, Mr. Ed, and Get Smart cropped up at one point as well. At Car 54, where are you? Oh, yes. So we got Get Smart, but it just feels like there was such a wave of sincere spy rip-offs of Bond and then parodies that it just seems jammed in that few years. That even 1966, it feels like it. It's on a list of when you're starting to run out of ideas. <laughs> that was that's what it felt to me. It didn't feel anything. Well, actually, this was one of the first episodes they made, and the two people who were the script and story editors, or the bosses of the whole writing staff, Gerald Gardner and D. Caruso, had come to the Monkees from Get Smart. So this was a very familiar territory to them. And they wrote this episode. They actually borrowed some jokes from Get Smart for this episode. But I disagree with you that it would be somewhat stale because this is 1966. It's not that old at that time. It was very current. I mean, Cold War, I think of this as being a very much of its time. Gary, do you have any reactions? Because I have no notes for this one. It just kind of washed over me. I'm glad I saw this one first because I enjoyed this. I think there would have been a couple of other episodes where if I'd seen those ones first, I would have thought, hmm, what am I getting myself into here? But this was good, silly, fun. This is exactly the way that I remember it being when I was watching it back in 1980s. This potentially is a controversial point of view, but I sort of prefer it with the canned laughter. Now, first of all, I'm assuming without any evidence in front of me that it actually is canned laughter, but I'm yes. pretty sure that it is. It is a laugh track. They did not have an audience. I think it just fits better. I think it just feels right. And there are little bits and pieces in the Series 1 episodes, such as this one, that I particularly like. Innovative little things like, for example, the use of the captions in arrows, stopping the film to make a visual point, sometimes zooming in the film or reversing the film, whatever it may be, it looks like they're actually having a lot of fun with the format and they're not afraid to try out little things like that. In the same way as like other shows of that 
era. Things like, for example, say Ronan Martin's laughing. They've got their own little kinks. They've got their own little trademarks and what have you. This is a show that seems confident enough to do that itself. And I don't really remember seeing little bits and pieces like that in any other show. So they seemed, maybe I'm wrong, but they seem to be original little additions to the sort of playful variety format. That was a trademark of the monkeys. It was something innovative that they were doing. Rowan and Martin's Laughing um, was about a year later. This was very much their visual style to in- incorporate cartoon elements. And breaking the fourth wall was a very major part of their show. There's a moment in The Spy Who Came In From The Cool where somebody sets a lamp down on a table and gives it a rub and Jeannie pops out of it and says she's there to serve you, my master, and I think it's Davy turns to the camera and says, what do you know, wrong show. To us, that's like, oh, that's a cute thing. But in 1966, that was shocking. I Dream of Jeannie was another Screen Gems production, but still, they were definitely crossing that boundary between reality and fiction, and fiction and fiction, fiction and even deeper fiction. For a new series, it seems to have quite a lot of confidence. It's not something that seems to be taking a long time to find its way, because you quite often get that when you look at like the very, very first episode of a long-running series. Sometimes it can be not quite unrecognisable in comparison to you know a few episodes down the line, but quite often you see bits and pieces and you think, yeah, they've clearly tweaked that or dropped that in episode two or three or whatever it may be, but this seems to sort of just come out of the gate ready. Um, if you count the pilot as the first episode, this was the sixth episode filmed. They were starting to get their legs under them. The music was only just being started. Um, the recording of records was only just starting. Um, one of the things that's interesting about this particular episode is it has more songs in it than any other episode. It has five distinct songs, which is way more than the usual, which is two. Part of that is because the plot involves the monkeys having a gig playing in a disco and the spies trying to you know, recapture their missing microfilm at the disco. But it gave them a chance to insert some of this music into the story. And what what I found really fascinating is that one of the scenes, they're performing for a room full of dancers, a song that had only been recorded about three days earlier. Gary, I've got a British Light Entertainment link coming. Because just thinking, the one thing I frequently read when it talks about the Monkey TV series is that if they're generous, they say inspired by the success of A Hard Day's Night. If they're not, they say ripped off. And there is... That feeling of Hard Day's Night, and as it drags on, of course, that feeling of help, which is more loose and freewheeling, but of course, that's Richard Lester. If we go back with Richard Lester, and at some point in a future podcast over at Jaffa Cakes of Proust, we're going to do British rock and roll films, I'm going to watch It's Trad Dead, which is Richard Lester, but I'm thinking, you've got a link from the monkeys to the goons there. Some of that off-the-wall humour is coming to them through Richard Lester, which is coming to Richard Lester through his association with the goons and things like the running, jumping, standing still film, which features David Lodge. Definitely something that would have been inspirational to um, Rafelson and Schneider. I've heard that title before. I'm not familiar with the film, but I've heard that that title referred to in context of the monkeys. And I'm thinking like captions popping up and some of that. That's kind of like, Gary, have you ever seen any of a show called Fred or... I think there's yes. one in yeah. circulation. And of course, that inspires Monty Python and also causes them great distress when they realise that Q5 has beaten them to it. So we've got our link there. <laughs> nice. But of course, none of these shows exist in a vacuum. I mean, they're all the component parts of what have gone before and what's influenced the people in front of the camera and the people behind the camera and so on. So yeah, it is interesting seeing 
where particular bits and pieces have ended up on screen in the monkeys and sort of, sort of tracing them back. So I suppose you would say, well, the monkeys themselves would have been growing up watching shows on American TV in like, the early 50s, I guess. Or in one case, appearing in a tele- television show. <laughs> <laughs> so actually, that's an interesting point. What difference does that make in terms of Mickey's role in the group and his appearance on screen? Do you think he can bring specialist knowledge and experience to the group? Well, now here you get into an interesting area. First of all, one of the things that was really remarkable about the show was that even though they hired four young men to play parts in their TV show, they did not give them names as characters. They used their own real names on the screen, and that blurred the line between reality and fiction. It is said that in three out of four cases, they were basically just playing themselves, maybe slightly exaggerated versions of themselves. And that, you know, Mickey does tend to be really off the wall and bouncy around. And Davey really is, you know, the ladies' man. And Mike was very, very serious. And then they just sort of punched those characters up a little bit. The fourth character, Peter's character, was fictional. He was played as a, a wide eyed, innocent, childlike sometimes called the dummy, whereas the real Peter Tork is not like that at all. But he had expressed a willingness to play that character, and so that was sort of created for him. But the experience that they brought, I think the more remarkable thing is not Mickey's experience as a television actor, but Davey's experience as a stage actor, that he had some very remarkable physical talents for stage business that really came to the fore on the on the show. I'm not sure if that's actually answering the question you asked. Oh yeah, no, it's interesting to hear because they're, presumably they're greater than the sum of their parts. So they've all got something that they can bring and rather than being, for example, because you might get like certain shows where they're all stage school kids, for example, or perhaps they've done like a straightforward transfer from something that's on the stage to the screen. Whereas this seems to be, we've got all manner of different backgrounds, skills, talents, and so on. And that might be, I suppose, part of the reason why it's so successful is because they're all bringing something different to the table. One thing that I think added to the success of their chemistry and also to the success of the show was about two months before they started filming the regular episodes, they brought the four monkeys in on an empty soundstage with a man named James Frawley. I don't know if that name is familiar to you. James Frawley was a very new at directing, but he had worked in improvisational comedy. And so the producers hired him to teach the monkeys how to do improv. Now, the episodes are not improvised. They had scripts. They stuck to the scripts. But what they learned to do was to be spontaneous and to be spontaneous together so that if one of them went off on a riff, the other ones could follow and create a scene or create a moment. Part of this showed up in their stage presence when they started performing in public as a band. But part of it added a little bit of insanity to the show. And I've done some comparisons between script and screen. You know, I get copies of old scripts and I compare it to what actually made it onto the show. And you can see those moments where they departed from the script and just riffed on a particular prop or a particular line and did something silly. And those are just absolutely wonderful moments. James Frawley, by the way, uh, went on to direct more than half of the Monkeys episodes, and he also directed the first Muppets movie. Ah, right. 
Gary, should we confess our controversial point of view that we developed watching this show? Going to have to remind me what this controversial point of view is, and then I, I might actually pretend that I don't know anything about this. Do you remember? We decided that maybe the catchphrase of the show should be "Shut up, Mickey." <laughs> well, I have to admit that I'm taking your lead on this because if you hadn't pointed this out, I probably wouldn't really have noticed this. But I suppose once you've pointed this out, you can't help but sort of notice. Yeah, that's fair enough. Maybe I'm just grumpy, but I found a little Mickey went a long way. He was the one who was most likely to play a character like a salesman or a crazy person. He he was the most likely to put on a strange voice because he was very good at doing cartoony voices. And he was the most manic of the characters. I wouldn't think that he got more stage time. But I, I think in Spy Who Came In From The Cool, he did that whole business where he was playing, I think the character is Q from the Bond movies, you know, showing off all the different spy gadgets. And he's you know, very much doing a voice and doing a shtick. I'm just a grumpy, joyless man. <laughs> well, I'll tell you a secret. The truth is that in real life, Mickey is very scripted. It's sort of a thing among Monkey's fans that, you know, when Mickey does an interview, you can pretty much count on the fingers of one hand what he's going to say, because he tends to say the same things again and again and again. And he said in an interview that, the, the training they did to be spontaneous was hard for him because he had grown up with scripts and being told what to say and where to stand and what to do it was very hard for him to break out of that scriptedness. I'm just looking in the distance and I see fading away from us the episode by episode examination, but it's okay. Goodbye, episode by episode examination. We didn't really need you. So I'll rein myself point- in. No, it's all of us. Another point to come to is I came to the monkeys nostalgia for the tv show caused me to tip a showing of head in the 90s which then made me as a snotty teenager give them permission to like them because they'd been weird oh okay i can like them now i don't have to hide my shame and when you discuss the monkeys as a band you meet a certain kind of person who likes them up to a point and then says something nasty about davy there's almost like you can meet somebody who says, I love the monkeys, but don't get me wrong, I don't like Davy. Surely that's just not nice. I mean, what's Davy done to harm anybody? He's lovable. I can't dislike Musically, Davey. he's very good at something that isn't appealing to a certain kind of authenticity-worshipping music snob. But when it comes to the TV series, wow, he's a good actor. He's a much drier performance than I expected. He's the fighter of the group. Which surprises people because, of course, his usual thing is, well, he's the heartthrob. He's the the one everyone falls in love with, the one he's always falling in love. But he's also the one who's most likely to hit somebody. And in fact, on the cover of my book, the the cartoon illustration on the cover of my book, he has his fists up. And that was at my request <laughs> because that, that is his role. Despite his short styes, he was the one who would walk straight up to a six foot seven bad guy, look him straight in the chest and say, why don't you pick on somebody your own size? He does use his fists. Um, There's a whole episode where he trains as a boxer, but it's not just in that episode. I mean, in Head, there's a whole boxing sequence with Davey. He's the tough one. He is an incredible athlete, and that was showcased in several episodes where he did some very graceful and very physically demanding work. The very first scene of the very first episode that was aired is him rescuing a girl from drowning. I mean, he was just natural athlete, which I think people tend not to appreciate and he was their song and dance man you've seen that sequence in head where he does the dance to the song daddy song quick mention to the other season one episode we watched uh, monkeys in manhattan 
there seems to be two main plots, which is they get involved in an adventure like Spy Who Came In From The Cool. There don't seem to be quite as many where it's all about music and others, I've got a little song here, things like that. But that idea of it is a show about a band trying to make it as a band. What's the balance of episodes about the band being a band or the band having adventures? Setting aside episodes in which the idea of a gig is just a little tiny plot device, you know. We're here to play a gig. Oh, well, something else happens. Actual episodes that are about them trying to find work as musicians, I'd say, would probably be somewhere around a quarter, maybe a little less. It was not a common thing. And in this particular episode, they start off saying that they just arrived in Manhattan after a cross-country bus trip because somebody wants to uh, use them in a Broadway play. I think one of the weaknesses of the episode, I'm giving away where it stands on my strong episode, weak episode, um, (laughs) is that they completely gloss over the decision to make the cross-country bus trip. I mean, they had to give up everything to travel 3,000 miles. It would have taken a week or more to get to New York by bus. They had no money, so they put it all on the line to make this trip. But the episode starts, they're already there. So, Gary, yeah, that Manhattan one, that was meant to be the not-so-good. Did you notice any great golfing quality between the two season ones that we watched? I can't really say I did, no. There seemed to be a little bit more in terms of supporting artists doing their own kind of thing. You know, all the business with... What was it the guy had, again? Get on appearing. It wasn't dogs or cats. What Rabbits. It? That's it. There you go. There was more just of that kind of peripheral business going on without the monkeys involved. But I didn't notice a great drop. No, it wasn't like that one with Hansel or Gretel or Robin Hood or whatever the hell it is. is it? <laughs> a fairy tale. <laughs> that felt as if the monkeys had moved to another network and suddenly had half their budget or something like that. So, yeah, that, that felt completely different. You didn't like fairy tale, did you? Me? Yes, you. No. I was Why a, not? Was I supposed to? Yes. No, no it, just, it just went on. There was no <laughs> There was no set. I mean, they were just there in a room. It was like a screen test just to see what they'd be like. It didn't feel like a, a proper episode. Well, I thought it was like an, an edition of Play Away. I thought it fit <laughs> in very nicely with the children's BBC vibe that we keep harking back to. Yeah, but if that's what the monkeys had always been like, that's one thing. But of course, we're used to it being a proper show with different locations and different characters and all sorts. And then suddenly it's all gone a bit small scale. It just doesn't seem right somehow. The fairy tale episode is well beloved oh, really? of fans. Oh, Yes. Oh dear. Partly because of Mike Nesmith's dual role as the princess i mean you have to admit princess gwen was a hoot gary you've gone quiet you did notice that was mike didn't you oh no 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 i did i did i did i did was there any split screen i'm trying to remember was there any split screen or not no but there were scenes where mike as the what was he the, the shoemaker would be like oh wow what a great looking chick <laughs> I don't know what it was, just for whatever reason, when that one came on at first, it was like, oh, someone's not right here. And also, I was missing all my little twiddly bits. No little on-screen captions, no boing, no sudden reverse of the film or anything like that. It all seemed a bit straight. They did use um, cardboard sets. You were right, there was no money spent on sets. Blank walls and cardboard. Um, Very two-dimensional, but that was intentional. They had all of the guys in dual roles you know, playing the various fairy tale characters. 
It's a quite popular episode. I won't go any farther than that. I love it. It gives me a thrilling vision of what a third series might have ended up like. It is the only episode like that. Let's put it that way. It was something completely different. It's not like, oh, yeah, they're doing one of those this week. I mean, it really was completely out of left field in every way. I'm going to have to mention Batman again, but the Adam West series, when that got its third series, but got its budget slashed, you now start seeing that it's there's, there's that one with a beach bar, and they've got the door you come in, and the bar set up, and there's tables and chairs, and everything else is black drapes. They just start putting the bare minimum of set, and everything else is black. I'm kind of imagining a third monkey series where they've got their series, they haven't got the budget, and things are just going to get a lot more... No fourth wall. Maybe even we start to doubt there's a script sometimes. Right, here's a couple of comparisons, Till. And this is an unusual way for me to approach this. Remember what you said to me? It was off air a little while ago. You were saying about the difference between Mark and Wise at BBC, Mark and Wise at Thames. Yeah? Now, in that particular instance, you were wrong. But I'll give you another example. Remember when we did the goodies at LWT? And there's that episode where they go on holiday. And it's all set within the three walls. And we started thinking, is this what the goodies would have been like if they'd gone to Channel 4? <laughs> so that's what this feels like to me. This is like suddenly The Monkeys is now no longer being produced by NBC, but it's now going to be like a syndicated show on a smaller budget. If there had been several episodes like that, you might make a case for it. But, but as I said, this was a standalone. There's nothing even remotely as weird as that. What's the backstory about why they suddenly had this change in direction for one episode? I honestly don't know. I mean, they had the script and they just decided that stylistically it would be fun to do it in a very visually unique style rather than trying to build fairy tale sets. They would just go with cardboard two-dimensional structures that would stand in for real buildings. I'm sure that money was an issue, but stylistically, instead of doing it cheaply, they did it uniquely. Now, as far as the third season is concerned, there is talk of what the third season would have looked like if there was one. Um, and that would have been something a little bit more like a comedy variety show with sketches and guests. And during the second season, they did have three guests come in and do a segment that was put either at the beginning or the end of the episode that ran three or four minutes long. And the guests were Tim Buckley, a fellow named Charlie Smalls, who would go on to write the uh, Broadway musical The Wiz. And the third one was Frank Zappa. And Frank Zappa came on dressed as Mike Nesmith, wearing a green knit hat. And Mike came on dressed as Frank Zappa with a fake uh, goatee and his hair all wild. So they switched places and interviewed each other as each other. So this is the direction they wanted to go. They were looking towards morphing more towards a comedy variety hour like Rowan and Martin's Laughing, or Sonny and Cher, or the Smothers Brothers. I'd love to have seen a Croft Brothers Monkeys variety show. Because I do like that that kind of show. And recently, Tilt and I were watching the Brady Bunch variety hour. And that, to me, is what variety shows should be like. But I would be quite insistent that, that one of the monkeys should have an artistic disagreement and ends up getting replaced. Well, we all know which one that would be. <laughs> and Rip Taylor's got to be a regular on it as well. Rip Taylor actually appeared in The Monkeys twice, as well as in 33 and a Third. I didn't recognize him in the episode that you selected. Tilt had to point it out to me. He said, oh, you know who that is, don't you? And I'm thinking, do I? But without the tash, I didn't recognize him. 
Have we got much to say about the Devil and Peter talk, apart from the fact that it clips along quite nicely? And we have a little subversion about the fact that they couldn't say hell on television. You can say it on a podcast, so we're okay. You can't say but you can say hell. The actor who played the devil, Monty Landis, actually appeared on The Monkey seven times, playing seven different characters. For a two-month stretch of time in the spring of 1967, he was a regular member of the cast. But every week, he was a different person. And that was an intentional conceit that Rafelson and Schneider came up with. Thought it would be cool to just have the same face of dishonest, untrustworthy adulthood be the same face every time. So monkeys race again. <laughs> you mean the auto racing Nazis episode? Uh, it's the thing of like, they tried to put this veneer of plausible deniability. Oh, these are World War One Germans. <laughs> Is Germany not buying this show because otherwise this is really going to be offensive? Remember you said, Tilt, that the BBC had about, was it 27 of them and then one of them disappeared all of a sudden went out of circulation? It wasn't this one, was it? Uh, no, it wasn't. Is Monkey's Race again generally agreed to be the worst episode? I would say so, yes. There are a few that might compete with it, but it doesn't have much in the way of redeeming qualities. It was actually the last episode they filmed. And I think they'd just given up. So am I wrong to prefer this one to the fairy tale one? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Should I go on a message board and say, I prefer Monkey's Race again to that one, a bit of the fairy tale, and then just sit back and, and, and await the responses? All opinions are absolutely valid, and I welcome the debate. But you would not be finding a lot of people supporting you in that opinion, no. I'm absolutely fascinated by your reaction to fairy tale. It is just stunning to me. I, I feel like I need to put this question out there because I've never heard anybody say they didn't like fairy tale before. <laughs> <laughs> okay, maybe it is. I think actually the lack of the canned laughter by this point is a problem for me in it. But for whatever reason, within the first five minutes, the best reaction that I can give was, oh boy, okay, so they're just going to be faffing about just doing it they're just they're just going to keep on faffing around for 25 minutes and there isn't really going to be really well while gary's talking about that i just want to pick and... some of you aside those of you who are british of a certain age have the same cultural frame as reference if you just want a vague idea of what monkeys race again is like it's like a three two one sketch which is why you liked it isn't it gary that'd be mike newman and Chris Emmett, that would have been fantastic, but it wasn't. Well, I said that the English chap with moustache in it should either have been Terence Alexander or, ideally, Jimmy Edwards. Was that T.N. Crumpets you're talking there about? There you go, yes, yes. You see, I, I felt a need to put that name out there for you, because <laughs> just to complete the cultural insensitivity of it all. <laughs> Are there any episodes with insensitive portrayals of the Scottish? No, I don't believe there are any Scots. Let's see, they managed to offend... The Chinese, the Mexicans. Oh, no. Hillbillies. What's the one where, where they offend the Mexicans? It's called It's a Nice Place to Visit. Oh, Basically, okay. the monkeys go to, to Mexico and end up on the bad side of a band of um, burly, smelly banditos. Episodes not to watch when my wife's in the room. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay, actually, let me ask this as a general question. I am a fan of the sports entertainment genre known as professional wrestling. And 
there's always that bit, and anybody who follows wrestling knows exactly what I mean by this. If you ever find yourself watching a wrestling show in the company of a non-wrestling fan, there's always a bit in the show somewhere where you suddenly get sweaty palms and think, oh. Do you know what I mean? It's like, oh, there's some bad acting in it or something, and it's like, you know the person who's watching this with you thinks, is this what you like? Does the monkey suffer from that kind of vibe? Because exactly for the reasons you've been talking about, about the fact that on the face of it, if you don't actually go into it in depth, it can look a bit saccharine and you know artificial and pieced together and, and, and what have you. Uh, I think, you know, what we were just talking about, that the, some of the cultural insensitivity is somewhat painful. One episode of the series in my book that I gave a failing grade to on a technicality, because it's actually a very good episode, is the episode that is about a band of Chinese spies. And it just milks every single possible Chinese stereotype to death. The two main bad guys are non-Asian actors with the heavy eye makeup doing make-believe Chinese accents and wearing silk pajamas with long braids and banging on gongs. And the argument being that it's a thing of its time and nobody thought that was offensive in 1966. And to that I would say, I bet a Chinese person would have found it offensive in 1966. I came across the words in blackface in a script, and it had been X'd out on a typewriter. The scene that corresponded to that moment in the script had been altered in such a way that you would never have known that that was even an issue. They were, I think, maybe not progressive, but certainly sensitive when it came to African-American characters. There weren't very many of them, but they were fairly neutrally portrayed. Postal carrier, a mailman, and other words, um, a police detective, guests at parties, people in crowds. There's one episode I mentioned earlier where Davy is a boxer. He's trying to learn to be a boxer. He's being bilked, I should say, by a dishonest boxing promoter into pretending to be a boxer. But in any case, he ends up being put up against the champ. And the champ is a young black boxer who is very clearly meant to imply Muhammad Ali. He likes to speak in rhymes and brag about himself, you know, in rhyme. And so even though he's never named other than the champ, you're supposed to think Muhammad Ali. And he was a very sensitively portrayed character, even though he didn't have a lot to do. When he was on stage, he was shown to be intelligent and perceptive and kind, polite, said nice things to Davy before their bout. Clearly a capable boxer, but also a good person. You know, that was one of the larger roles for an African-American character in the series was the champ. I suppose it's something that gets lost now that now we might see things that are of their time, but some of the more forward-thinking elements probably just aren't noticeable to modern audiences. I did look at one, I don't know if it was one of the ones they uploaded onto YouTube in HD, where they talk about the Sunset Strip demonstrations. And that was wild. Yeah, that was remarkable that they were talking about this in one of their interview segments. And it was Mickey who said that they weren't really riots. They were demonstrations, but the reporters used the word riot because it's easier to spell. These were not burning down the city kind of riots. This was a very localized thing that happened in California, right close to where they filmed. Um, So it would have been something that was very close to them. Mickey says he was there which I find a little hard to believe because he was so recognizable that, you know, it might couldn't have been easy for him to be out in public. But in any case, he said he was. 
and he saw what happened. One of the th- most subversive and for me uncomfortable moments in the entire series is in um, an episode about aliens. And the whole aliens thing is used as a metaphor for integration. You know, be careful the, you know, the aliens are moving into your neighborhood. Wink, wink kind of thing. And there's a moment when the narrator in this particular episode, and this episode has a narrator, which is very rare for them. And the narrator talks about kids today. And he said, well, look at the war. Whose fault is it? We're not the ones fighting. It must be those crazy kids. And my jaw just hit the floor when I heard him say that. I thought, my God. I mean, this we're talking about the Vietnam War, of course. Mm. But this was just starting to heat up to the point where the country was about to boil over with anxiety about this. And to say that the war is the fault of those crazy kids because they're the ones fighting, that was like a very strong slap across the face to me. I was absolutely astonished that they included that that line in the show. Is this something that the monkeys themselves, have any of them ever commented on that in, in retrospect? They were not allowed to talk publicly about the war. There were hints. Of course, I don't think any of them were in favor of it, but they were kept on a very tight leash when it came to current events. So, Gary, the last episode we watched, did you not like that either? Which one was that? Mijikojo, the fraudist caper, the one with the wizard and the one with Peter staring blankly at the television. Because that was another odd one. I didn't have a problem with that one, but at first oh. it threw me the wrong way because I was thinking, is this one where Peter's not really in it? Because all we'd had was those couple of minutes of him sat in chair motionless, and then there was like a good 10 minute chunk where it didn't appear, and I was beginning to think oh, is this maybe one where he's not around or something like that? Is this a sort of filler episode? Or something? But obviously it wasn't. But no, I, yeah, this, this one was quite nice, I and mean, there was a lot going on, and uh, some nice sort of clever visuals and what have you. So no, no this one was fine. Well, a couple things. First of all, Peter never missed an episode. Uh, it was Mike who missed several for various reasons. There are f- four episodes that he either was not in at all or was in only very tiny bit, like right at the beginning or right at the end. Peter, however, was quite often the victim of some kind of kidnapping or hypnotism or something that would cause him to be out of circulation for big chunks of the episode. And I think that was just because his character was the most susceptible to that sort of thing, being the innocent. You know, the other three would then be free to go rescue him. I will say for Mijikojo, he was out of commission a lot more than usual. Because <laughs> they got him unfrozen and then froze him again. <laughs> Making it necessary to carry him through most of the second half of the episode. I don't approve of that, but that was the decision of the director. Did you see who the director was? Oh, was this... Mickey Dolan's uh, episode. Yes. 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 That's the episode yeah. that Mickey directed and wrote as well. Gary, do you remember when we did our David Lodge movies and there was that one with Roger Livesey in it? And I said, sometimes it's a sign, sometimes of flagging inspiration, sometimes of flagging budgets. If you're really stuck, set part of the story in a studio with bare walls so you don't have to put up a big set. <laughs> it's okay, we're in a television slash film studio. <laughs> We just have to set up the cameras and we're done. Yeah. <laughs> That's definitely an element of that particular episode. They saved a lot of money and time that way. This is another one that feels super subversive. I mean, Niles is stunned, isn't he? That oh, guy come that... on. The whole Frodo's plant is American. Well, yes, yes. It's just that was the first one that really popped up, the bit with Niles. That seems to be one with the least plausible deniability, as opposed to Lick's reaction to all that, all that smoke. Absolutely. It's a, a metaphor for marijuana. In fact, Frodus was 
the word that Mickey coined and was used on the set for marijuana. So, you know, where are the boys of Frodus? They're in the Frodus room. They're off doing some Frodus. <laughs> that was their word for it. And the brief appearance of Adolf Hitler. So, I don't know, just set of strange thoughts of like, it made me start thinking about the evil mastermind in television. We have had evil masterminds. Why are we so pleased about stories with them? This is the end point of evil masterminds. It's really happened in real life. Yeah, he was trying to was trying to make a point, although he ended up making a point about marijuana instead of about the evils of television taking over our minds. You notice that, well, maybe you didn't notice, the, the symbol on the television that was causing people to become hypnotized was actually the logo of one of the U.S. networks. I hadn't made that connection, but yes. Was it the C- CBS? Oh, it's the CBS Eye. Brilliant. That was hypnotizing people. Now, mind you, they weren't on CBS. They were on NBC. I was, I was going to say, would it be more subversive if it had been a giant peacock or something like that? <laughs> <laughs> Probably a little bit more obvious, too. Yeah. <laughs> Bringing things back to British sitcom, though we've got a weird little Star Trek diversion here. The card game Creebage. It's something that turns up. I mean, how, how much of a link could we talk about between the monkeys and the goodies? How much is the monkeys a proof of concept document for the goodies? But that episode we talked about earlier, the holiday one, they have this thing about playing a game, a card game where the rules keep changing. And then that got nicked by the League of Gentlemen for Go Johnny Go 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 Go. Again, the, the card game you play to just mess around with one of the players. Is that a standard bit that pre-exists? I just find it interesting that the rule-free card game, that's the earliest example I've seen of it in comedy. There may be a predecessor. I'm not familiar with it. I did question at the time who stole it from whom. So I did some research and discovered that it's not possible that it was stolen between the two shows. I'm referring, of course, to Star Trek and The Monkees, which were both being filmed at the same time. The Star Trek episode that has that game called Fizzbin in it was filmed before Mijikojo was filmed, but aired after Mijikojo was filmed. So unless there was communication going on between the two production companies, there's no way that one would have known about the other. And they were two completely, it's not like they were eating at the same canteen or hanging out in the same offices. They, two completely different production companies. So it's probably just a coincidence, but there may have been a cultural predecessor. I'm thinking there might be some vaudeville routine. That's exactly what I was just thinking. I was thinking of something along the lines of Abbott and Costello or something like that. Interesting, though, that they both got used at roughly the same time on US TV. So one thing, I think one maybe last point to make about the Fraud Escaper is, again, looking at the possibilities. If there's a third series of The Monkees as scripted sitcom, not as variety show, it's a problem that could have cropped up. What level of weird can you maintain once... The fourth walls come down. Once you've got a situation where anything can happen, it gets very hard to surprise the audience. So I'm wondering if a third series might have ended up like a bit like the third series of Monty Python, which just occasionally looks like it's trying to be itself. Nobody has to react to that. I just wanted to put that down. And and the tweets will, will come. I think Mijikojo is... I, I found it to be delightfully um, clever, but also sloppily executed. You mentioned earlier how they were just able to use the bare walls of the soundstage as their set because they were filming in a television studio, so it was okay. But I thought the costumes and the props were equally uh, bare. And, uh, you know, when they were running around the neighborhood and burst into that house where Niles was living, and you only see like two feet of Niles's house, and even those two feet of Niles's house 
look like they were created with paper cutouts. I thought that they could have dressed it up a little bit more neatly. That was my dislike of Mijikojo. I liked it all. <laughs> I mean, there are some amazing bits in there. And uh, one of the interesting things is that right at the very beginning of the episode, they have a complicated device to wake them up in the morning and it plays a record. <laughs> and the record is the Beatles, Good Morning, Good Morning, which was the first time that anybody had been able to license a Beatles song for use on American television in this way. And that was done, you know, uh, Mickey still talks about it today and how excited he was when he got permission to use that five second clip of Good Morning, Good Morning. So the 1997 reunion, what's the general opinion of that show? We're talking about a lizard sunning itself on a rock. Indeed. What, what do the fans think of that one? From what I have heard, generally disappointment, but gratitude that it exists and wanting to see it again pristine because it's never been made available in any format other than the original broadcast. So if anyone who was taping on their VCR on that day it might have a personal copy if they've kept it in good shape and they still have a VCR that works. Somebody has uploaded it to YouTube. I'm not sure I'm allowed to say that, but I just did. It's the only monkey's product that does not belong to Rhino. Also, if you have a VCR and we're in the UK, it's not so good for you because the Channel 4 showing had about five minutes hacked out. Oh, which five? Uh, it was just gags here and there, little lines. You don't get Tasmanian Kabuki and Donald Duck throwing a temper tantrum. You get one line of the shopping channel. Just, we have a record out and that's it. They even cut out, I think, the first and second dimensions on the Dimension Machine Monkey Mobile. Oh, well, that's really a shame. What's interesting is that the special is actually owned by the monkeys themselves. Mike Nesmith wrote it and directed it. Um, the copyright is held by a company that was formed by the four monkeys. So... Peter, Mike, and Mickey each own one quarter of it, and Davy's estate owns the other quarter. And so it's the only thing uh, that has the name Monkeys on it that's actually owned by those four guys. I think that's wonderful. But they've never made it available, not on commercial tape, not on DVD, not on Blu-ray yet. 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 So it's generally regarded as a disappointment. Gary, do you still have the keys to the Contrarian Mobile? We are swimming against the tide here, aren't we, on this one? Bless you. So, yeah, this thing comes along and I'm sort of like in two minds about it. And yeah, actually, I quite enjoyed it by the end of it. It, it seems to actually walk a nice in between. Obviously, it's, it's going to be different because they're 30 years older. But also, we've spoken about some shows which come back after a long while away and really fundamentally altered. It's like characters who were in their 20s and were larking about and just you know carefree having fun are now in their mid-40s and have mortgages and failed relationships and everything's really gloomy and horrible and everything and so i was really pleased that it wasn't like that and it wasn't trying to be something different and yeah i think it works a standalone show there's no bitterness to it which there could so easily have been i'm thinking like head like 33 and a third they're working through that whole thing of having been branded fakes, not sure if they are fakes or not, and then add on top of that the passage of time. This could easily have been like... Well, we, we did a show where we talked about there was a period in the 90s when a bunch of old sitcoms got revived. And I think the three we talked about were Legacy of Reginald Perrin, The Liver Birds, and Doctor at the Top. 
there's a lot of ill feeling being worked out in those. Reginald Perrin's actually probably the least bit, but there's that whole thing of, we are old and it, the world is not meant for old people. And yes, previously happy-go-lucky characters crying, ending an episode with a character crying, or this whole thing of a pensioner's protest. And this show could have been so easily in that trap. And just the moment it starts... And they're still in the beach house, and they're just hanging out, and they clearly like each other's company. This is a pattern for how to do that kind of thing. You're going to come back, just just say, yeah, but things haven't changed that much. Right. In fact, if you want something from the monkeys that is an example of that passage of time bitterness, it's probably the album just does. <laughs> That's the one with the midlife crisis going on. Yeah, yeah. Well, going back to the special, my greatest dissatisfaction with it was that they spent a huge amount of time discussing and debating whether or not they needed to have a plot. So that basically the plot of the special was that no matter how many plots come along, we don't want to participate in any of them. And so things kept happening and they kept saying, no, 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 we've done that before. We don't want to do it again. And so... They have the the young woman who's, you know, being chased by scary people and they're like, oh, no, thank you. And the little boy whose pig is about to be slaughtered. We've done that before. And in the end, what they end up doing is rescuing some guy's country club. And the very first pilot was about them being allowed to play at a country club that didn't want them. And then the special ended with them showing up at an exclusive country club and uh, saving it somehow by performing it was just like you didn't save the pig and you didn't save the girl (laughs) but you saved the country club (laughs) (laughs) on the other hand we did get to see davy jones as ethel merman which you know that's worth the price of admission right there maybe that's why i like it so much the first i saw of the special was when i saw them live in 1997 in sheffield and they had screen set up that would show bits of the special in between. So it was really shown the best bits first and then had to wait for it to turn up on TV. And uh, yeah, I think that's a great monkey moment, just <laughs> just that bursting out. I'm Ethel Merman. That's <laughs> He was so game for that sort of thing. Just as a general point, I think it's such a shame that future generations will not know of the inconvenience of waiting for an American TV show to turn up on British TV. Because now it's just a case of you're sitting there on the, pressing the refresh button saying, when the hell is this torrent going to get uploaded? <laughs> and yeah, before you know it, you've, you've, you've seen it in pristine quality. But you know, no, yeah, back then you had to wait for a station to buy it and schedule it and, and all this kind of thing. And yeah, and as you say, then go and make silly random edits to it. So it takes you now 20 years to actually see the finished proper thing. No, it is better nowadays, what I'm saying. It is better. Another thing, we, we talked about earlier how there's no plot reasons. There's no backstory for the band. We don't know how they got together. And I quite like how they don't take the obvious route here. This isn't about them getting back together. They completely sidestep that. Yeah, it would be the dullest and most obvious idea. The first idea is to write the story of getting the band back together. Yeah, the, towards the very end, when they're driving the car, the monkey mobile, back to the pad, Somebody says, you know, isn't it interesting that people don't realize that when a show goes off the air, it doesn't mean that we stop to exist and we just keep going and going even though no one's watching us? Which means, you know, even though they stopped making the monkeys in 1968, the four fictional characters still exist in some way 
living that same existence in a fictional world. I like that. Yeah. So we've asked questions and not answered them, which is what we like to do. A couple of other light entertainment links I forgot to mention, Gary. Uh, just that thing of the monkeys being weirdly current in the 80s, of course, because we had Metal Mickey. And of course, there was some, I can't remember the name of it. There was a BBC One Kids treasure hunt that was co-presented by Davey. I don't know if they actually got him in because he'd become one of the faces of summertime television. So they, they still felt current to us, in a way. They were still part of our general entertainment life. Yeah, it, it, it didn't feel dated. I mean, okay, yeah, it's clearly a 60s show when I was watching it in mid to late 80s, but it didn't feel like this is like a different universe or anything like that. And I knew who they were, and... Yeah, you would occasionally see them turning up on chat shows or whatever it may be. So, I've had a wonderful time, and I'd like to put in a plug for the Zilch podcast, which I'm a occasional presenter. You can find it on zilchmonkeyscast.blogspot.com, or just do a search on your favorite search engine for Zilch, Z-I-L-C-H, podcast. Let's have one more plug for the book. Oh, thank you. Monkey Magic, a book about a TV show about a band. Well, thank you very much, Melanie, for joining us today. It's been an education. But just a quick plug for ourselves. As we said at the outset, in case this is the first time you've ever heard of us, this is one of our shows, The Sitcom Club, which principally talks about British sitcom. Our other show, which is everything except sitcoms, is Jaffa Cakes with Proust. Both of those shows you can find on podnose.com, where you'll find all manner of other podcasts as well. You can follow ourselves on Twitter and on Facebook at The Sitcom Club. We just released a podcast last week. It was the last of our four-part discussion on class in British sitcom with our associate member, Birdie. And in this particular show, we're talking about representations of the upper class. Feel free to have a plunder in the archives of our previous podcasts as many of them have been around just over three years now i think we've got about 100 or so podcasts in the archive and also we do occasionally turn up in our people's podcasts as well now there's a lovely little podcast on the subject of professional wrestling called monday night bra with ian hepburn and i've just appeared on that in the past week we're talking about world championship wrestling from 2000 so you can find that if you have a look at our Twitter feed, you'll see a retweet of that show on there. Until you were somewhere the other day as well, weren't you? Also on the podcast network, like what we are, is a show called Cinema Limbo, which looks at movies that suffer in their critical reputation and don't really deserve to. Uh, I recently, with its presenter Jeremy Phillips, looked at the film The Saint. I was brought on as expert on The Saint, something which I actually had to do a lot of cramming to become. And we, yeah, we look at the Val Kilmer movie of The Saint, find it's not as bad as its reputation as a movie, but I do put forward the idea that it does deserve its reputation as a movie adaptation of Simon Templar as created by Leslie Charteris. If you've got anything at all for us, like I said, you can tweet us at the Sitcom Club or Jaffa's for Proust, which is a rather show. You can email us feedback at sitcomclub.com. Find all our previous shows at podnose.com and we will be back very soon, both on the Sitcom Club and Jaffa's for Proust, later in the summer with all manner of treats and delights. So in the meantime, once again, happy independence, tilt, and thank you very much indeed for listening to the Sitcom Club.